was gone last week. It was nice to have a break of sorts, although I was preaching in uh, New York uh, at Stony Brook Preparatory School, uh, which was an interesting experience, uh, preaching to kids from all over the world. Uh, the, the consistent story, this is the school where Mark and Amy Tejan, if you remember them, are now um, ministering and serving uh, in, that, in that place. And Mark's the chaplain, and they, they flew me up to speak, which is one of the nice perks of the job. Um, but Stony Brook Preparatory School is an interesting place. We consistently met kids who would be from some place like Nigeria, but their parents worked in Saudi for the oil companies, and they went to school in New York. So quite the life. We met a little 12-year-old boy. It was his birthday. He was actually he was turning 13 the day he had dinner with us. He, uh, he was away from his family. He'd been sent away to boarding school as, a, as an 11 and 12-year-old. Uh, pretty interesting and crazy experience, uh, but good to engage with those kids. I think 60% of the school, even though it's Christian, is non-believers. And so Mark and Amy have a cool ministry up there uh, that fits them very, very well. Let's get to God's Word. Colossians 3, chapter, uh, or verse 16. A brief reading this morning. Hear God's word. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This ends the reading of God's word. Um, A couple weeks back, we looked at um, what it looks like uh, for the word to indwell us. And we primarily looked at what, what that might look like for the word to indwell us as individuals, to be a people of the word, who love the word, who submit and who see the word as our authority in our lives, what it looks like to practice and pursue the word to be and dwell our hearts in our lives. But the more specific context, and well, even though we looked at it individually a couple of weeks ago, the more specific context of Colossians 3, verse 16, and all these put-on verses, is the corporate context of God's people. That this is what God's church is to be doing, to be dwelling ritually as a body. And so as we looked at a couple weeks ago, we looked at what it looked like for the, for the word of Christ to dwell in you ritually. But how does that begin to be played out in the life of the church? What does that look like as it's played out? When the word dwells in you so richly and so abundantly that it flows out into your relationships. I think there's three points this morning to help walk us through this verse and the rest of it after that first phrase. And we're going to look at what the word does, how the word speaks, and where the word originates in us and in our hearts. Where the word does, first and foremost, as the word dwells in you abundantly, and abundance is that it overflows into other ways, is it does two things we see here. Is that in the body of Christ, we begin to teach and admonish one another. Two, two words there, teach and admonish. What is teaching? Teaching is the orderly arrangement of truth to help people understand the truth. So biblically speaking, it is teaching God's word means that we are so, God's word so richly dwells in us that we are used to communicating in such a way that we are constantly telling those around us, helping one another understand what it is that God's word actually says. And it's communicating in such a way that's effective that we can understand it. The other word is this, is admonish. We admonish one another. Admonishing differs from teaching in a slight way. Admonishing has the element of strong encouragement or exhortation, calling people to move forward in a particular way. It is, it is a call to apply the right teaching of God's word in a practical and moral and ethical way in your life. So we put these two together. The relationships in the church, that we should be a church that so loves God's word, 
that the word of Christ so dwells in our worship services, in the lives of our individual members, that we interact with one another in light of God's word. That we are constantly teaching one another and helping one another understand what God's word says and applying it to one another's lives. Teaching and admonishing one another. In other words, we're helping one another have a biblical worldview. A biblical worldview. Teaching is rightly understanding the Bible so that you understand the person and work of Christ Jesus, the word of Christ. And admonishment is helping others see themselves through the mirror of the gospel and seeing the world through the lenses of the gospel. This is the biblical worldview. We all, are, we are all have a worldview, a way in which we see life and translate life and interpret life and react to life. Now, there's a man named Francis Schaeffer who was in our particular denomination in the, in the 70s and the 80s, and this term, biblical worldview, became a very, very popular term and a big issue that is studied by Christians. It isn't so much studied anymore. But very frankly, people have asked, like, why don't we speak about biblical worldview more here at King's Chapel? Well, the reality is, is we are constantly teaching you a biblical worldview. It is not that we stop teaching the Bible and teach you philosophy as part of it, of understanding culture and philosophical systems and understanding the, the cultural lenses with which we see, but it is primarily to have a biblical worldview is you have to know the Bible and have it applied to all areas of your life. To combine these two is to help us develop and see the world as the Bible sees it, as God has called us to see it. And so biblical review involves right teaching. It's so easy to interpret life and to explain, explain the scriptures in a way that is through our cultural paradigm or our moral paradigm. Such as, for instance, that we read the Bible and we read it in such a way that reflects our own personal preferences in regards to morality. So, for instance, 40 years ago, you found almost no Christians that would have approved of homosexual marriage. Now, we are rereading scripture in light of that because people's morality has changed, the culture has changed, and we're rereading scripture to come up with a different answer that fits our morality. In the same way, you wonder how people 150 years ago, how Southern Christians who loved the Bible and knew their Bible could hold slaves. The reality is, is what they did, despite the fact that it's evidently obvious in the scriptures that, that it was wrong, that it was a slander of God's people as image bearers, they read the Bible through a particular cultural lens and they read the Bible and translated the Bible through that lens. This is a problem for us, that we are consistently bringing our own political views and we're starting with those presuppositions and we're reading the scriptures through those lens. The Bible has authority first. Now, part of the issue here is we, we all, we, none of us come to the scriptures as blank slates. None of us. We always come with the culture that our parents gave us and the priorities and the political preferences and the moral preferences that our parents gave us. And for many of us, that was great because their parents were giving us moral preferences that came from the scriptures. But often we are reading the Bible through a cultural lens. It is, it is, it is, a, it is wise of us as we go to study the scriptures that we understand how we are consciously interpreting the scriptures. It's also wise of us that we would read those from other cultures and other societies, that we're not simply reading Western white men from the past 20 years. We need to expand those we read so that we can understand the Bible better and see it from different perspectives, and then go to the scriptures and say, what do the scriptures say about this? 
It has rule and authority in our life. Are you teaching your children? Are you teaching the people in our church your own kind of practical man-centered wisdom? Or are you starting with God's scriptures and moving out? Same way, same works for biblical worldview on admonishments. How we apply God's word in particular and practical ways. People don't need your opinions or your agenda for them for how they should live their life or how what goodness looks like. They need God's wisdom, God's applications for their life. Not your own flavor of the month in regards to morality. We normally look at ourselves, we so often look at ourselves as Christians like people look at themselves in carnival mirrors. That we may, we may, we hear God's word, but then we distort it. We distort the application of it because we don't see ourselves rightly. We look at ourselves and we think we have three inch torsos and six foot necks. That's what we look like. But what we need to do in admonishing one another and encouraging one another and applying God's word is say, let's hold up the mirror of the gospel in front of you. What does it say about who you are? What does it say about how you should live? We need the corrective mirror, and that's what we hold up in front of people. Not our own particular proclivities. Now, here's what it says. Who's supposed to do this work of teaching and admonishing in God's church? Is this simply left up to guys like me who went to seminary, who got the professional training or the Christian degrees? Who, is it simply left up to our elders and our pastors? Do you have to be in full-time Christian ministry to do this? No, it says teaching and admonishing one another. This is called the priesthood of all believers. If you're a Christian, this is part of your role. That you teach and admonish. That we do not view the body of Christ as merely a bunch of consumers who come in, sit in a pew or a seat and consume and don't encourage other people. This is our call to one another, to to teach one another, to admonish one another through the lens of Scripture, not our own lenses. And we do this with all wisdom. We apply with gentleness and with care in a way that is wise and right. So that's what the Word does. The Word teaches and it admonishes. If you, you know, you can be a good barometer as to whether this church is doing a good job and being faithful to God's word is, is the word evident everywhere. One of the things that we want to do in our worship, what we say, if you're coming to the Discover class, I'll just give you a, a heads up. This is one of the things I'll say and try and describe and help you understand why the way we worship the way we do is that we want to be word-driven. You notice that we start with the word, and the word is peppered throughout our worship order. We hear God's word and we respond to it. We want the word everywhere. We want the word to drive our community groups. We want the word to drive your interactions with one another. Is the word, is that, what are we teaching and admonishing each other? Is the word so richly dwell in us that it bubbles over into our relationships in this way? Now, how does this word speak? How does this word speak? This word speaks in many ways, but in this particular passage, Paul gives us an interesting perspective on how specifically in God's church, when God's people gather together, how we teach and admonish each other through God's word. And that is through this particular way, singing. Singing. We are called to sing. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing another with all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. That we sing to one another. Did you know the, the command to sing? There's over 400 references in the scriptures to singing and 100 commands commanding us to sing. Commanding us to sing. There are more commands in the scriptures to sing than there are to pray. We are to be a singing 
people. And who do we sing to and for? Our worship and our singing is to be to God. He is the primary and singular audience of our worship and of our singing. Our worship and our singing must be God-centered. And it must be for his pleasure and for his glory. Too often as American churchgoers, that consumerism mentality takes hold in the way we view worship in which we think that we are the audience. But that's not the way it is. We are the players on the stage and God is the audience when we show up on Sunday morning. He calls us. Can you imagine what it would be like if you were to go to see a play and all the people in the play just decide, eh, do I feel like going tonight? No. The people in the play have to go. They don't have an option. And so it is with us. It is not a matter of how you feel on Sunday morning. You are in the play and the audience is God and you've come to worship him for his glory, for him to hear your praises for his pleasure. And worship, is, it ought to be done towards God, in the presence of God, but in the hearing of other people. In the hearing of other people. See, we are called to sing to God as the primary audience, but we also sing for the benefit of one another. It is centered on God, but it is also for the benefit of those who are here in the room with us. We are called to sing for the benefit of other members of God's people. This is what corporate worship is. That we speak to one another. We enter into worship on Sunday mornings. And you come to worship to glorify God in order to speak and teach and admonish those around you. The implications for us in regards to this fact are these. It's twofold. One is that when we, we should get together and sing as a congregation and as small groups and as community groups, we should sing in order to be heard by one another. Don't give up coming on Sunday mornings. You, people, people like to say, I can, I can worship God just as well on the golf course and on the boat and sitting out in the woods by myself in God's creation. The, but the problem is, you can't, when you're out there by yourself, you can't fulfill this call. You can't sing to one another. You cannot sing for the benefit of one another. You don't go to church and ask what I got out of it. You're asking, how did I bless and teach and admonish my brothers and sisters through the songs and worship and scriptures read? This also means that it is justifiable. You may notice that many of our great hymns and our songs are not necessarily sung to God, but they're actually sung to one another. Oh, worship the king is a call to one another to come sing. Crown him with many crowns is a beckoning to us to worship God by crowning him as our sovereign ruler. These are admonishments to one another. We are beckoning and calling one another like athletes on the sideline that cheer one another on. This is a part, an aspect of our worship. This is why it's encouraging for our souls to come into worship. And a primary and specific vehicle for teaching and admonishing is singing. What is the content of our singing? What is it that we say? What well, says sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? Now, what does that mean? Commentators have debated it for many, many years, and there's not necessarily any great clarity as to what this means. What these clear what are there clear differences as to what these are? But generally, they've come to this consensus that psalms refer to Christian odes patterned after Old Testament psalms, or literally taken from Old Testament psalms. Hymns would be longer compositions, and there is evidence that these actual hymns, we see fragments of them throughout the New Testament. In fact, one is probably found in Colossians 1, 
where it talks about Christ being preeminent and sovereign over all things. And it, 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 hymns have a particular reflection of Christ's work in this world. And the spiritual songs are simply spontaneous, spontaneous songs coming from God's people in the midst of worship. Songs, some have referred to these three as being simply this, songs from Scripture, songs about Christ, and songs that come from the spirits. But ultimately the point is that they are all biblical. They all come from God and from God's Word, and they are the means of communicating biblical teaching about God, about what he has done, about his redemptive, salvific word and work in this world, and the implications that there are for us. This means that the word is not only proclaimed during the preaching, but it's proclaimed each and every Sunday in the singing. I'm going to critique my tribe. I don't know what's going on with my mic here, but I'm going to critique my particular tribe, which is Reformed Presbyterian. Very often in Reformed Presbyterian circles, since the Reformation, we have said that the preached word is the center of the service. You may notice this. Everything flows to and out of the preached words. And that it is lovely. And there, is a, there are historical reasons for that. That when the reformers were removing themselves from the Catholic Church, they were saying that the word is sufficient and we want to preach the word and the word only as, this, as the way of describing and communicating to us what our faith and work and life should look like. That the Pope doesn't have authority with the words. So they were centered on the word. But it was also, just like I was talking about earlier in regards to a cultural context, this, there was a cultural context in which the Reformation happened in which it was a people who were rather waspy. They liked lecture-style teaching. They were a people who liked to hear thick, didactic preaching and theology. This is the type of a very scholastic environment. And it actually put down and underplayed worship as a part of the, a part of the worship service. This has made our worship services to where the, the singing is merely a preparation to hear God's word instead of the proclamation and the teaching of God's word in our songs. So teach your children singing. We hear the gospel in our songs, in our preaching, and through the sacraments. All throughout, it's God's word being proclaimed. So parents, as a part of family devotions, teach your children to sing. It's a means of some of the, the, the words that I know Throughout, throughout my Christian life that have been most encouraging to me, the scripture passages that I've memorized, I have done it through song. Psalm 130, from the depths of woe I raise to thee, the voice of lamentation. I cry out to you. Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God. Psalm 5, hear my prayers, God. There are songs over and over and over again that the church has developed that come directly from the scriptures and that teach God's words. May we be a singing people. And when we sing, just like when the preach word, how the preach word forms us and transforms us, so the singing of God's people, singing God's word to one another, forms and transforms us and shapes us as a people. Have you ever, have you ever noticed how music is one of the most primary means in which a culture defines itself and displays itself? So it is with the church. Can you imagine Jamaica without reggae music? Can you imagine Ireland without Celtic music? It shows and reflects who the people are as a part of their identity. It weds them together, and so does our music and our singing. It communicates what we believe and what we love and what we cherish. 
We sing at weddings and we sing at funerals. We sing at celebrations and birthday parties and patriotic events. We sing at college football games because it gives us a sense of identity. And so when we gather together to worship God, we are being reminded that our identity is not in our individuality, but is in the one who we worship. So we sing together. We sing. Why singing? Why do you think God has given us singing? Why is this such a powerful device? Because there are points where words are not enough. Singing enables the soul to express deeply the emotions that we feel, that mere speaking cannot. Singing channels our spiritual energy in a way that nothing else can. Singing invokes an intensity from our souls and our hearts, from our mind and its spirits. It weds both heavy thinking and also beauty, truth, and spirit are wedded together in, in thinking. You can't simply speak of God. You must sing about God. You have to express emotionally and affectionately who God is in song. C.S. Lewis said this in his reflections on the Psalms. I think we, we delight to praise what we enjoy. Because the praise not merely ex- expresses, but it completes the enjoyments. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until they have expressed their delight to one another. And so it is with song. That we express our delight with God. Do you enjoy a roller coaster in which you do not scream? There is no enjoyment in a roller coaster in which you don't scream. So it is with communicating your delight and affection for God. Singing is the way we do that. We can say God is great, and that is so true, right? We can say God is great and magnificent. Or we can say this, he is immortal, invisible, God only, li- only wise. That's the way to say it. It's poetic and it's beautiful and it engages our souls. Singing has power to restore and encourage our souls. What do we do when we're down? We need a song. How many of you are empowered? How many of you are empowered by singing Isaiah 43? When you're going through a difficult time. When it says this, when you pass through the waters, they will not overcome you. When you enter the the flames, they will not consume you. When you sing songs like, I am bound, I am bound for the promised land. And engages your soul and restores and encourages you for the work that God has given you. When you sing how great thou art, you have a sense and a taste of the greatness of God more than you've ever had. I I can only speak for myself, but when I'm happy, I sing. When I'm sad, I sing. When I'm wrestling through things, I sing. When my soul feels dry and I have nothing to write in my journal, when I have nothing to say to God, I turn to singing to try to elicit the affection that I long to have for God. There is power in the beauty of music. And in fact, God's word communicated through song, it saves. This woman named Anne Lamont, who's wrote a number of significant books on Christian spirituality, one's called The Pilgrim of Tinker Creek, um, and a number of other books. She's rather famous as, a, as an art, as a, as a, um, author. She writes beautifully. But she was a, a crack addict at one point in her life. Drug addicted, drunk much of the time. She was a single mom. She was, frankly, a rascal. She was brilliant, though. A college professor. And she was far from God. She hated the church. And she hated preachers in particular and their preaching. But each Sunday morning, she would get up. She lived in San Francisco, and she would take a nice stroll through the city to her favorite farmer's market. But as she passed, in order to get to the farmer's market, every Sunday she passed a little church, a little Presbyterian church that had about 40 people in it. 
And every Sunday as she passed, she would hear the singing coming from that church. And at first, she would simply stop outside after a night of cocaine and just let the, let the, wash, the music just wash over her. Then she started standing in the, the kind of the foyer area so she could hear better. Then she began to move into the sanctuary, and she stood against the back wall. Then she sat down in the back rows, and she would never stay for the preaching because she hated the preacher, and she hated the way she, he communicated. But she said she would, singing did something inside of her that brought her alive. She said, something inside of me that was stiff and rotting would feel soft and tender. Somehow the singing wore down the boundaries and distinctions that kept me so isolated. But standing there singing with them, sometimes so shaky and so sick, I thought I might tip over. I felt bigger than myself, like I was being taken care of, tricked into coming back to life. The power of truth in song, because it is God's word, it has the power to save. How many of you have sung to yourself in a very difficult day, Jesus loves me, this I know. It saves because it is God's word being communicated and taught as we sing it. Now, where does this song come from? Where does the song come from? What well, says this at the end of the verse? It's where the, where the word originates in our hearts. With thankfulness, it says, in your hearts to God. Thankfulness from your heart, which means this, you're to mean it. You have to mean what you worship. You have to mean what you say. You have to mean your praise and worship to God. Worship must be rooted in the depths of our personal experience and spring out from us. That's true worship singing experience that changes you and is effectual. John Piper says this. In other words, the essence of Christian worship is an inter-authentic valuing of who God is in our hearts. How do we get that affection? How do we get thankful Hearts. How do we get singing hearts that communicate God's word back to him in praise and worship? You can gather people into church. They sit, they listen to the preaching, they stand when you're supposed to stand, but they never sing. This is a problem in deep southern churches, particularly for men, because we've never taught, been taught how to feel and how to emote, because we've never learned how to sing. The church we were at before this one, I love the church. But my wife, after we had our daughter Lila, we turned to each other, and we, the, the worship it was not the worship style, but the worship stunk. And we looked at each other one day, and we said, we do, not want to, we do not want to raise our children in a church that people don't know how to sing. They sang glorious hymns. They had a gorgeous organ, and it boomed, and people should have sung with it, but nobody sang. Why don't you sing? Why don't we sing all throughout our days? Why don't we sing like we're called to in this verse? The, the answer is that we don't have a song. You can't sing unless you have a song. The failure to sing in worship is not from a lack of voice. It's from a lack of a gospel song that emanates from our hearts. And how do you get that? You get that by hearing the voice of God in his song. You see, singing, the theme of singing runs throughout the scriptures. God the Father speaks, and he sings his words to us. His song is the way he creates. You know that Genesis 1 is written in very clear poetic form? It is in some ways a song. It says that there was singing at creation. Job 38 says this, When I laid the foundations of the earth, the stars and the angels sang for joy. In fact, in Deuteronomy 32, they see that God not only is a singer, but he is a composer. And he writes a song, and he gives it to Moses. It's called the Song of Moses. 
It's incorrectly termed. It's the song of God given to his people. In Proverbs 8, we're told when God was creating the world in wisdom, the beings, the angels who were watching, danced and they sang for joy. And then we see that all creation in response to being created is they sang back to God. The story of mankind, the reason why we don't have a song, the reason why we don't have thankful hearts is that we separated ourselves from the voice, the song of God over our hearts and our lives. We separate ourselves by our sin, and now what comes out of our hearts and our mouths? When we go to sing, all that comes out is the croak of a groan. This is what creation is doing. Romans 8, 23 says this. It says, all creation groans, longing, longing to hear God again. Creation went from singing to groaning because of the fall of man, and all creation fell with man. We are separated from God, who gave us all the reasons that we had to sing. And so we have lost our songs. All we have now are trite little songs about the the little pathetic things of this world that we can try to bolster up to make of our gods, or we can sing a dirge. How do we go from groaning to singing? We have to hear the song of God again. And we hear it and we get the opportunity to hear it through Jesus. We must look to him and to his song. What does Jesus do? We were supposed to be a people who sang praises to God and said we emanated curses towards him. We created elaborate songs of ways to curse God. In our brokenness, we moan and we groan, but Jesus came to sing a perfect song for us. His worship, his life was a perfect song of praise to God. And on the night in which he was betrayed, on the night when he went to the cross, what did he do? He served the Lord's Supper to his disciples, and they went out singing together. He went out to the Garden of Gethsemane where he cried out to God, and where the next day he would cry on the cross, and he went to the cross singing a song on our behalf. And on the cross, did Jesus sing? See, on the cross, what Jesus got was what we deserved. See, what we see in Jesus on the cross is no more singing, but simply the groaning that we have emanated from our mouths for all of history. He groaned. He cried out to God the Father, and there was no song back from his Father. Why? Why did he do that? Why did he lose the Father's voice? So that you and I could be sung over. So you and I could be restored to the presence of God and hear God sing over us, sing his good news to us, sing of his character and his beauty to us. Zephaniah 3.17 says this, The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. God the Father sings over you. You will never sing. You will never be a grateful people who have the gospel song pour forth from your heart until you have been ushered into the presence of God and heard his gladness over you. God sings over us. And in fact, he leads the, heaven, the choirs of heaven to celebrate and sing over us. When you get that in Jesus, that he delights in you, when you hear that, the response must be in us to sing if you truly understand what he has done for you. His song, his song, Jesus' song was turned into a groan so that our groaning may be turned into songs and so that we may respond now to God's goodness and God's graciousness and God's sovereignty and God's gospel with singing and rejoicing. We sing to God in response to what he has done to us and for us. But not only that, but we sing with God. You see, God joins his people in the midst of his worship. In Hebrews 2, verse 12, it says this, that Jesus, speaking to God, says, I will proclaim your name 
to my brethren. I will sing your praise in the midst of the congregation. You see, when we gather to worship here each and every Sunday morning, there is somebody else who is leading us in worship besides Chris. There's somebody else who's here. There is a worship leader in our midst, and his name is Jesus. He is the one in Hebrews 2 who leads all of God's people, who will lead all the nations in the worship of God for all of eternity. You've experienced this in your own life, the worship, the song of God. You know, barbershop quartet has four guys. Four guys in a barbershop quartet. But they, but they talk about often that when they hit perfect harmony together, that they hear a fifth voice. They hear a voice that is not any of their own. There's a new voice that reflects in the way that they sing. The voice of God. Have you ever had someone who sits behind you who has a great voice? If you're like me, you show up to worship and you don't want to sing loud. You've got just this weak, croaking, bullfrog of a voice. But if someone has a beautiful voice, sits behind you, and you sit in a congregation where the people are singing out loud, this is one of the sacrifices that you all make by coming to the first service, is that when you hear this beautiful song, you can sing. It's no longer your weak voice that you hear. It's the voice of the person behind you. And you're strengthened to sing. And this is the reality for us as Christians. That we come, we come worshiping God with our weak sauce. With our weak voices. With our impure and imperfect worship. But who reflects and sings behind us is the voice of Jesus, the Son of God. And the Father loves to hear his Son sing. And so when God hears you sing, he hears the voice of his Son singing through you. The Spirit of God rejoicing in all that he has done. And so the Christian life ought to be full of singing, which is sing to ourselves in moments of joy. This is what the Israelites did. When they're joyous, they sang. They, 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 they crossed the Red Sea, and they sang of God's goodness to them. In the times of brokenness and sorrow, what do you think Negro spirituals are? They're beautiful cries out to God, trusting him, saying, this is our plight now. Save us, O God, and then worshiping him for his promised salvation. Worship of God, even in the most difficult things today, are seen in the light of the heavenly worship service we will, oh, we will be entered into at the end of all things. Paul and Silas, they're sitting in a dark and dingy jail, and what do they do? They sang. Elie Wiesel, who was in Auschwitz for many, many years, said the most impressive and most moving thing he saw during his time there was when the, when the Christians were gathered up and single file ushered towards the gas chambers, the Christians would sing on the way to the gas chamber. God's people sings. Have you ever been to a, a, a funeral? The most powerful moment to me in every funeral is when people get up and sing. In the face of death, Christians sing. In the face of suffering, we sing because we know the way things end. And we're reflecting what we will do at the end of all things. At the end of all things, we're told in Romans 15 that Jesus will lead the nations, Jew and Gentile alike, in worship. And Jesus will be our great worship leader. And we will join all creation to sing as they did in Isaiah 55, 12, which says this. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you. And all the trees of the fields will clap their hands. Why don't you start to sing? It's your heavenly occupation. Do you hear the voice of our God singing his love over you? And do you hear the voice of your Savior beckoning you from the worship service of eternity saying, sing with me, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that like the people of Israel who groaned under their slavery, 
that, Lord, you've heard our dirge, the crying out, the song of anguish of your people from generation to generation that cried out, longing for you, longing for your salvation, and you listened. The song of agony beckoned you, elicited your character to come save us. And we thank you that now, Lord, instead of simply hearing the lies, the lies that are proclaimed in the songs of this world, we hear your word proclaimed over us and the beautiful speech of your word. Lord, we thank you that in the middle of your Bible, you gave us a songbook. You declare that you sing with gladness over us in Jesus Christ, that you rejoice in us. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd root that truth in us and that it would drive us to sing that we would not be silent in front of your gospel, but that you would engage our affections so that we may encourage one another as the word abundantly bubbles over into our interactions. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.